Chapter Fifty Two of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Psuke Berea. Chapter Fifty Two of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. The tardy gig had overtaken me at last. I entered it, and bade the man who brought it drive to Grassdale Manor. I was too busy with my own thoughts to care to drive it myself. I would see Mrs. Huntington. There could be no impropriety in that now that her husband had been dead above a year. And by her indifference, or her joy at my unexpected arrival, I could soon tell whether her heart was truly mine. But my companion, a loquacious forward fellow, was not disposed to leave me to the indulgence of my private cogitations. "'There they go,' said he, as the carriages filed away before us. "'There'll be brave doings on yonder to-day, as what come to-morrow. "'Know anything of that family, sir, or you're a stranger in these parts?' "'I know them by report. Humph, "'There's the best of em gone, anyhow, "'and I suppose the old missus is a-going to leave after the stir's gotten over, "'and take herself off somewhere to live on her bit of a jointer. "'The young un, at least the new un, she's none so very young, "'is coming down to live at the grove.' "'Is Mr. Hargrave married, then?' "'Ay, sir, a few months since. "'He should have wed a four to a widow lady, "'but they couldn't agree over the money. "'She'd a rare long purse, "'and Mr. Hargrave wanted it all to himself. "'But she wouldn't let it go, and so they fell out. "'This one isn't quite as rich nor as handsome either, "'but she hasn't been married before. "'She's very plain, they say, "'and getting on to forty or past, "'and so, you know, if she didn't jump at this opportunity, "'she thought she'd never get a better.' I guess she thought such a handsome young husband worth all that she had, and he might take it and welcome, but I lay she'll rue her bargain afore long. They say she begins already to see as he's not altogether that nice, generous, polite, delightful gentleman that she thought him afore marriage. He begins a being careless and masterful already. Aye, and she'll find him harder and carelesser now she thinks on. You seem well acquainted with him, I observed. I am, sir. I known him since he was quite a young gentleman, and proud one he was, and willful. I was a servant yonder for several years, but I couldn't stand their niggerly ways. She got ever longer and worse, did Missus, with her nipping and screwing and watching and grudging, so I thought I'd find another place. Are we not near the house? said I, interrupting him. Yes, sir. Yon's the park. My heart sank within me to behold that stately mansion in the midst of its expansive grounds. The park is beautiful now, when its wintry garb, as it could be in its summer glory. The majestic sweep, the undulating swell and fall, displayed to full advantage in that robe of dazzling purity, stainless and printless, save one long winding track left by the trooping deer. The stately timber-trees, with their heavy laden branches gleaming with white against the dull gray sky, the deep encircling woods, the broad expanse of water sleeping in frozen quiet and the weeping ash and willow drooping their snow-clad boughs above it, all presented a picture, striking indeed, and pleasing to an unencumbered mind, but by no means encouraging to me. There was one comfort, however. All this was entailed upon little Arthur, and could not, under any circumstances, strictly speaking, be his mother's. But how was she situated? Overcoming with a sudden effort my repugnance to mention her name to my garrulous companion, I asked him if he knew whether her late husband had left a will, and how the property had been disposed of. 
Oh, yes, he knew all about it, and I was quickly informed that to her had been left the full control and management of the estate during her son's minority, besides the absolute unconditional possession of her own fortune. But I knew that her father had not given her much, and the small additional sum that had been settled upon her before marriage. Before the close of the explanation we drew up at the park gates. Now for the trial. If I should find her within— but, alas, she might still be at Stanningley. Her brother had given me no intimation to the contrary. I inquired at the porter's lodge if Mrs. Huntington were home. No, she was with her aunt in Shire, but was expected to return before Christmas. She usually spent most of her time at Stanningley, only coming to Grassdale occasionally when management of affairs, or the interest of her tenants and dependents, required her presence. Near what town is Stanningley situated? I asked. The requisite information was soon obtained. Now then, my man, give me the reins, and we'll return to him. I must have some breakfast at the Rose and Crown, and then away to Stanningley by the first coach for— At M I had time before the coach started to replenish my forces with a hearty breakfast, and to obtain the refreshment of my usual morning's ablutions, and the amelioration of some slight change in my toilet, and also dispatch a short note to my mother excellent son that I was, to assure her that I was still in existence, and to excuse my non-appearance at the expected time. It was a long journey to Stanningley for those slow travelling days, but I did not deny myself needful refreshment on the road, nor even a night's rest at a wayside inn, choosing rather to brook a little delay than to present myself worn, wild, and weather-beaten before my mistress and her aunt, who would be astonished enough to see me without that. Next morning, therefore, I not only fortified myself with as substantial a breakfast as my exciting feelings would allow me to swallow, but I bestowed a little more than usual time and care upon my toilette, and, furnished with a change of linen from my small carpet-bag, well-brushed clothes, well-polished boots, and neat new gloves, I mounted the lightning, and resumed my journey. I had nearly two stages yet before me, but the coach, I was informed, passed through the neighbourhood of Stanningley, and having desired to be set down near the hall as possible, I had nothing to do but sit with folded arms and speculate upon the coming hour. It was a clear, frosty morning. The very act of sitting exalted aloft, surveying the snowy landscape and sweet sunny sky, inhaling the pure, bracing air, and crunching away over the crisp, frozen snow, was exhilarating enough in itself. But add to this the idea of to what goal I was hastening, and whom I was expected to meet, and you may have some faint conception of my frame of mind at the time, only a faint one, though, for my heart swelled with unspeakable delight, and my spirits rose almost to madness, in spite of my prudent endeavours to bind them down to a reasonable platitude by thinking of the undeniable difference between Helen's rank and mine, of all that she had passed through since our parting, of her long, unbroken silence, and above all of her cool, cautious aunt, whose counsels she would doubtless be careful not to slight again. These considerations made my heart flutter with anxiety, and my chest heave with impatience to get the crisis over. But they could not dim her image in my mind, or mar the vivid recollection of what had been said and felt between us, or destroy the keen anticipation of what was to be. In fact, I could not realize their terrors now. Towards the close of the journey, however, a couple of my fellow-passengers kindly came to my assistance, and brought me low enough. "'Fine land, this,' said one of them, pointing with his umbrella to the wide fields on the right. 
conspicuous for their compact hedgerows, deep, well-cut ditches, and fine timber-trees growing sometimes on the borders, sometimes in the midst of the enclosure. Very fine land, if you saw it in the summer or spring. Aye, responded the other, a gruff elderly man, with a drab greatcoat buttoned up to the chin, and a cotton umbrella between his knees. It's old Maxwell's, I suppose. It was his, sir, but he's dead now, you're aware, and has left it all to his niece. All? Every root of it, and the mansion-house, and all, every hatum of his worldly goads, except for just a trifle, by way of remembrance, to his nephew down in Shire, and an annuity to his wife. It's strange, sir. It is, sir, and she wasn't his own niece neither, but he had no near relations of his own, none but a nephew he'd quarrelled with, and he has always had a partiality for this one. And then his wife advised him to it, they say. She brought most of the property, and it was her wish that this lady should have it. Humph! She'll be a fine catch for somebody. She will so. She's a widow, but quite young yet, and uncommon handsome, a fortune of her own besides, and only one child, and she's nursing a fine estate for him in. There'll be lots to speak for her. Afraid there's no chance for us facetiously jogging me with his elbow, as well as his companion. Ha, ha, ha. No offense, sir, I hope. Ahem. <clears throat> I think she'd marry none but a nobleman myself. Look at ye, sir, resumed he, returning to his other neighbor, and pointing past me with his umbrella. That's the hall. Grand Park, you see, and all them woods. Plenty of timber there. Lots of game. Hello. What now? This exclamation was occasioned by the sudden stoppage of the coach at the park gates. "'Gentlemen, for Stanley Hall!' cried the coachman, and I rose and threw my carpet-bag onto the ground, preparatory to dropping myself down after it. "'Sickly, sir?' asked my talkative neighbor, staring me in the face. "'I dare say it was white enough.' "'No. Here, coachman. Thank you, sir. All right.' The coachman pocketed his fee and drove away, leaving me, not walking up the park, but pacing to and fro before its gates, with folded arms and eyes fixed upon the ground, an overwhelming force of images, thoughts, impressions crowding on my mind, and nothing tangibly distinct but this. My love had been cherished in vain, my hope gone for ever. I must tear myself away at once, and banish or suppress all thoughts of her, like the remembrance of a wild, mad dream." Gladly would I have lingered round the place for hours in the hope of catching at least one distant glimpse of her before I went. I must not suffer her to see me, for what could have brought me hither but the hope of reviving her attachment, with a view hereafter to obtain her hand? And could I bear that she should think me capable of such a thing, of presuming upon the acquaintance, the love, if you will, accidentally contracted, or rather forced upon her against her will, when she was an unknown fugitive toiling for her own support, apparently without fortune, family, or connections. To come upon her now, when she was reinstated in her proper sphere, and claim a share in her prosperity, which, had it never failed her, would most certainly have kept her unknown to me forever. And this, too, when we had parted sixteen months ago, and she had expressly forbidden me to hope for a reunion in this world, and never sent me a line or message from that day to this. No, the very idea was intolerable. And even if she should have a lingering affection for me still, ought I to disturb her peace by awakening those feelings? To subject her to the struggles of conflicting duty and inclination, to whichsoever side the latter might allure, or the former imperatively call her, 
whether she should deem it her duty to risk the slights and censures of the world, the sorrow and displeasure of those she loved, for a romantic idea of truth and constancy to me, or to sacrifice her individual wishes to the feelings of her friends and her own sense of prudence and the fitness of things. No, and I would not. I would go at once, and she should never know that I had approached the place of her abode. For though I might disclaim all idea of ever aspiring to her hand, or even of soliciting a place in her friendly regard, her peace should not be broken by my presence, nor her heart afflicted by the sight of my fidelity. Adieu, then, dear Helen, for ever, for ever adieu. So said I, and yet I could not tear myself away. I moved a few paces, and then looked back, for one last view of her stately home, that I might have its outward form at least impressed upon my mind as indelibly as her own image, which, alas, I must not see again, then walked a few steps further, and then, lost in melancholy musings, paused again and leant my back against a rough old tree that grew beside the road. End of chapter 52 of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall